Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. Today, Pastor Fisher reminds us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the only true answer and love for all of us. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. Welcome in the name of the Lord. See a little baby out there smiling and happy. <laughs> so cute. We have a good word to study this morning here in Ephesians 6. And um, before we do that, I want to bow in prayer. Ask the Lord to help us understand his word and apply it. Thank you, Lord, for calling us together this morning. Open our hearts and minds to your word today. Father, I know that part of this word today is about our spiritual battle and getting our heads around that, our hearts knowing how to be in it, how to respond to it, to be ready for it, to be on guard and then poised to go on the attack when it's our turn, to be safe in the battle. We need help with this. We need your understanding. We need insight. And, and Lord, even to have our eyes opened to the battle, we need help from you. So please, Lord, let your spirit fall on us this morning, open our minds to this conflict, and help us to understand and grasp these things and be ready. And having done everything, as Jean said under her breath as she walked away from the Scripture reading, to stand, having done everything, to stand. Thank you, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, just a little shout out of congratulations to Adam and Ari Kraft. They got married yesterday. So if you're a Facebook fan and you find them, you can congratulate them. Uh, nice celebration. So turn with me to Ephesians 6. I just want to announce that we will have prayer time again at the altar afterwards. So if you want to come forward and pray about anything, uh, including the spiritual battle, you're welcome to do that. The altar will be open if you want to intercede for someone else as well. Turns out that prayer is one of our number one offensive weapons in this battle we're in. And uh, we're, we'll talk about that more today. Uh, another time, actually today I want to focus on the battle itself. But before we get there, I want to conclude some bits and pieces from last week. We looked at Christian parents' responsibility to disciple their children. Fathers bring them up in their training and instruction of the Lord. Spent quite a bit of time there. And I want to emphasize something I may not have done so strongly enough last week. This. That Paul puts responsibility for discipling their children on parents specifically naming fathers. But by this, he's not excluding mothers. Elsewhere, Paul reminds Timothy of the faith he learned from his believing mother and grandmother, honoring those ladies for passing on their faith. This is clearly not just fathers who can do this, but fathers do have a key role, fathers and mothers. The point here is that Paul lays it upon parents to disciple their children and train and instruct them in the Lord. In today's increasingly anti-Christian culture, we parents must take this responsibility even more seriously. Amen, that's right. We 
certainly can't expect this from the public schools, from the media, from the entertainment industry, from our politicians or our court system or our children's smartphones. You know, I'm always pleasantly surprised when I hear from my children of the godly influence of some Christian teacher at school. And I do hear about those things. But I also know that our court system made promoting any religion at public school problematic. And other teachers are just as likely to proudly display their atheism or some other ideology. And our kids hear that. So parents, it's up to you. If you don't do it, those other things will instill something in them. You know, we're reading more and more about social contagion of various conditions in, uh, that are caused as kids pick up a smartphone and that becomes the primary influence in how they think and how they see themselves and it distorts and twists their minds. If you parents are not doing something to instill some the faith in your children, those other things will. And it likely won't be faith. You know, we delegate part of this work to the church, and that's good. You know, the church picks up, or parents volunteer to teach masses of children. You know, it's generally a parent that we ask to mentor some of our confirmation students because that's part of their spiritual parenting. But the research shows the children most likely to own their parents' faith for themselves have seen it modeled and taught in those parents in day-to-day -day life by the, all the little things they say and do that show they know, know and love Jesus. That's what makes faith real for them. Mom and Dad know Him. And I see it in the way they live. I see it in the way they treat me. I see it in what they talk about. I see it in their priorities. It becomes credible. Fathers, mothers, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That remains our responsibility. Now I want to just briefly touch on the next passage on slaves and masters. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. I kind of picture Joseph in this context, the way he lived when he was in Egypt, when he was forced to go there as a slave, and he ended up serving in Potiphar's house, and then later even in prison serving. The attitude he had was one who was doing it the best for all his might because he was God-fearing. I, I, I kind of get that picture here of what Paul's talking about. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You know, we need to remember the context of Paul's letter here writing to a church in Roman culture where slavery was a fact of life. And Paul gives these instructions for how Christians are to live in such circumstances. Now, we can be tempted to hear these instructions and miss their import because of our own deeply troubled American history with slavery. 
You know, you don't have to think long to remember that not just the Civil War, but what led up to that and the centuries of chattel slavery that we imposed on the African people that were kidnapped and brought here. And that's horrible, horrible piece of our past. And in fact, some use this passage and that troubled history to accuse Christianity of being insensitive to the evil of slavery. And I want to just uh, dispel that myth for you this morning. A careful look at Scripture shows a clear trajectory of equal treatment and freedom for slaves. Paul clearly calls slave trading evil in 1 Timothy 1.10. He also makes clear in Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11 that there is neither slave nor free in Christ. In Paul's thought, slaves and masters are on an equal footing before Christ. That was unprecedented in ancient Roman culture where slaves were denigrated, used, and treated like so much mere impersonal property. Revolutionary. In fact, that's how slavery ended up gradually declining and coming to an end in Christian Europe, later in England. In fact, under the influence of the Wesleyan and Evangelical revival, as William Wilberforce and other Christians in that country said, slavery is evil, we need to stop it. And eventually the British Empire outlawing slavery throughout all the domain of the empire. Probably the primary reason they didn't come on to the side of the South in the Civil War because of their own moral opposition to that based on their Christian faith. So, you see here in Scripture, in fact, kidnapping in the Old Testament. Did you know this? That kidnapping in the Old Testament was due the death penalty? And isn't that how so much slavery, even today, sadly, takes place? That shows you how strongly God feels about the evil of kidnapping. So what principles can be gained here in a post-slavery environment, at least for those of us who are you know, here in the West? Because there's places in the world where slavery still takes place. I think maybe the work ethic is a good takeaway we can use to apply from this. And also this concept that we're slaves of Christ. Do you get that? That when you are bought by Jesus and you accept that you belong to him, you become his slave. Now that's slavery in the best sense, right? You either get to be slaves of evil or you get to be slaves of good. Which one seems to be better, right? So really, that's supposed to be capturing an image of true freedom. Because that's what you get in Christ. Jesus said, Whoever sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So slavery to Christ is freedom to love, freedom to do good, freedom to be uh, set free from impurity, freedom to do right, freedom to live in God's glory. That's what slavery to Christ entails. You think about how People should treat each other in the work environment. I think that's one takeaway because that's mainly the way slaves and masters related. It was a work environment. I think in today's world, we can think about how employers and employees should interact. That 
In Christ, there's neither employer nor employee. They're both equal before him. Each have equal standing. Is each treating the other with respect? The worker is told, do your work not just to please your employer, but to please Christ. Do it for him. You know, it reminds me of uh, Brother Andrew, who was uh, in a monastery and assigned uh, the humble duty of dishwashing. And, you know, if if you're like uh, aspiring to towering spiritual things, maybe you're thinking dishwashing isn't the greatest thing in the world for me to do. But he decided, I'm going to do this dishwashing for Jesus. That's how I'm going to think of it and how I'm going to approach it. And so he became a great dishwasher. And he found great joy in doing those dishes well because he was doing it for his master and his master was giving him joy in the work. Now that applies to every place where we work, that same principle. Every place we work will have duties that seem a drudgery and others that may seem joyful. But if we do them all for the Lord, there's a fulfillment in doing them for the Lord. Now we don't get just from trying to please people. And in fact, that's what Paul says here. Don't do it just to gain the favor of your employee because their employer, because their eyes are on you, but do it to gain the favor of God, doing the will of God, serving wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now that's how we should approach our work life, whatever it may be. And then there's a promise that goes with that. God will, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, Brother Andrew actually went on to appear to many around him as a towering spiritual giant because of the reward of faith and love that was growing in him as he served his Lord in that humble context. It applies to employee, uh, employers too. The E's and the ERs today. I'm, I'm mixing them up, sorry. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know he was both their master and yours is in heaven. Employers, treat your employees in the same way. I think that could be a modern application of this. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. You know, this is really a call for equal treatment. That before God, you're on an equal standing. There's no favoritism. The employer is not in a higher and better place than the employee in terms of their status with God. And that's then how they should treat their employees, recognizing that they're fellow walkers on this journey at the same level. And one has been given a different set of responsibility than the other, but both have to give account to God for how they treated each other. Not just for the work they did, but for how they treated each other. Brothers, sisters in the work of moving things forward. So that, that's some principles I think we can draw from here. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. And there's a reward the Lord will give you for doing that for Him. And treat each other equally and with respect. And we may not have modern slavery, but we have work relations in our lives, all of us. Or if you don't yet, you will. <laughs> and figuring out how to 
live into these principles will make your work life so much better and easier. And Paul knew that when he was instructing these folks. Now, let's move on to the spiritual battle section, which is where we're going to spend some time, some significant time, not just today, but going forward. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Now let's just talk about this spiritual battle we're in. Our struggle, not against flesh and blood. There are forces that resist the work of God in the world. That resist good and promote unrighteousness. And these are not just civil and political structures, though those structures can and sometimes do serve the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. You know, you think about the spirit of slavery whereby the entire government of the United States, or at least much of it for decades, served in colluding with the kind of oppressive slavery that took place in our country. Political structures can get involved in promoting an evil agenda, but there's a force behind them, Paul is saying. There are political structures that work in our uh, United States today and in every nation of the world that are working to oppose God's good plans for human beings. To move the, the players who are involved in those places of government to do their will instead of God's will. You know, this whole thing of spiritual warfare, it's so important for us to get our heads around it and to grasp that it's real. And I know that we live in materialist culture, in a, a culture heavily influenced by a view of the world that said there was no spiritual realm. And many of us grew up in schools where the spiritual realm was never talked about at all, except perhaps as an old-fashioned superstition of Bible religions and, and other faith traditions of the world. The reality is that we're surrounded by evil, and it's sometimes more than human. You know, when Jesus sent out the 12 in Luke chapter 9, it says, listen to the authority he gave them. This is the, the 12, okay? Luke chapter 10 that we heard from today was sending out the 72. In Luke 9, it says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, there's some more about his instructions, but I just want you to note that he gave them his own authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal the sick. And they went out and they did that. You get to the next chapter, chapter 10, and Jesus is giving the same kind of authority to the 72. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two, ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And now there's more instructions, but I want you to notice what happens when they come back. 
The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So clearly he gave them the same kind of authority he gave the, 70, uh, the 12, the 72. And here's what Jesus says to the 72. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now I think he's saying that in, in, in their delivering people from evil spirits in this ministry as they go out two by two to the towns of the area, the kingdom of the enemy was starting to crumble. I think that metaphorically, that's what Jesus is describing when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have, now he continues, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, first of all, I want you to get that Jesus is super clear that we have an enemy. Now, if Jesus is Lord, and he's the Son of God, and he comes from eternity, and he says we have an enemy, shouldn't we believe him? Now, really, who knows better what's on the other side of the veil than the one who came from there? Okay, now I get that we live in a materialist culture where we, we don't really like to think of demons, although if you watch the show Supernatural and other uh, crazy um, occult and witchcraft and, and related kind of TV shows and movies, you know that this theme is increasingly popular in our culture. That there is a supernatural realm and people are hungry for it. They want to find out about it. And if the dark one is the only one they learn about, at least they've got some kind of curiosity, uh, some kind of way to fulfill their curiosity. But by our Lord's own revelation, there's an enemy, there's an evil realm, and it oppresses and captures some people, and they need to be set free. There's a spiritual battle, and there are victims in that battle who have been taken captive. And Jesus sent out his followers with authority specifically to set them free from that captivity. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. What a promise. Now, it's worth just a little pause to say that writings of that era by other Jewish sages show that in the first century A.D., Jewish exorcists put demons into two categories, biting snakes and stinging scorpions. But that's how they described evil spirits, using the metaphor, the imagery of snakes and scorpions. They weren't, Jesus was not talking here about physical snakes and scorpions. He was talking about the evil spirits that these, his followers were setting people Free from. Now he goes on to say, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now once you get that the, the, there's a reality in the heavenly realm, then there are a couple strategies the enemy has to trip us up even in that. This is one of them. To get so obsessed with the authority we have in them and to think about them all the time that that's all we think about. And, and we start to get chuffed as if the authority was ours instead of Jesus's. Uh, and, and Jesus puts that spirit right in its place. Don't, don't, don't get all super thrilled about this. The only reason you can do this is because I'm with you and I've given you my authority. 
not to get obsessed with those. The, the devil has three other strategies. One is to get us to oppose God and side with him. I mean, that's, that was his strategy in Eden. If I can just get this couple to oppose God and side with me, to take my advice instead of his command, then I will have totally ruined them. Now, that's one of the devil's strategies. The second one is to get us to so be afraid of him that we are frozen in fear and don't know what to do, like deer caught in the headlights of evil. And the third strategy is to get us to so ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist, or at least tell ourselves he doesn't exist, that he is free to work in secret because we're doing nothing to oppose him. Right, those three strategies, they're all potential pitfalls for the Christian. We can accidentally, like Eve, get deceived and end up serving the devil by what we decide to do. Or, or we can say, oh my gosh, the devil's real. I'm so scared. What the heck do I do? I'm just going to hide away. But then you get attacked by fear all the time. What do you do with that? And the third strategy to suppose, well, he's not even there. He's not real. I'm, I'm just going to ignore that whole area. It's too inconvenient and I don't know what to do. And, and so we don't even bother to engage in the spiritual battle. And we get rolled over because of it. But Paul is super clear with these directions. We're in a battle. And if we don't stand up and fight, we won't stand. We'll get knocked over. You know, once you realize that you're in a spiritual battle, then you realize you better be ready for it. Or you're going to be one of its victims. Cannon fodder or worse. Now, I, I, I want to just say this too. I've been reading a really cool book by a, a professor named Greg Boyd called God of War. And he makes a really strong case that the problem of evil, the philosophical problem of evil, why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow that? It's super hard to answer that problem of evil, that philosophical problem of evil, without this warfare understanding. And here's why. If there's no real devil, if there's no real evil, then why does God allow evil to happen? If there is no evil, then he's ultimately responsible for everything, including evil. Now, that might be like, you, you might be saying to yourself, well, I can deal with that if it was little stuff, but what if you get to big stuff? Like Nazi atrocities, mass genocide, the horrors of war, the, the, the horrors of abuse and, and uh, murder and all the terrible things that we do to each other. Now, what the Bible says is God is not responsible for these things, but he took the risk of making a world that's so amazing, he made creatures that are free to oppose him. With all the risks that entails, well, they might choose to thwart me, to go against what I say is best for them because I've given them freedom. I'm not, I haven't made them puppets. I've given them the right to choose. And it's very clear he didn't just give human beings that. He gave the spiritual beings he made before us the same kind of freedom. The angels. Am I scaring her? Wow. <laughs> she can't understand me. 
No, this is, um, I get that it's hard to get your head around. I, I've shared with you before how it happened to me that my eyes were finally open to this. I was in that prayer conference in Israel, and they were teaching on getting free from stuff that's um, against the holiness of God and that takes us captive, among many other things. It was an intercessory prayer conference. And as I was walking with my friend Victor across the campus, this is January, late, late December, early January, 84, 85, we heard a blood-curdling scream come from a building on the campus where the retreat was being held, not too far from Jerusalem. And uh, we were like, whoa, what's that? And we didn't know. It just was like, wow, something's going on. The next day, they, a girl stood up, a young lady, and she stood up and she said, I want to give my testimony. Last night, the leader set me free from an evil spirit. It was masquerading as Jesus, this evil spirit, and telling me that I personally was the bride of Christ. A lying spirit pretending to be Jesus. And I got free from that last night. And when I realized what a lie I was living in, I screamed. It was a scream of the evil spirit coming out. And remember Jesus' ministry when he set people free from evil spirits, sometimes in the context of the synagogue worship, they would come out with shouts and screams. Now, we don't want to see anything like that happen, right? We're like, oh my gosh, that could disturb our little, our little like safe, comfortable box of worship. But the truth is, when God is moving and the Spirit comes upon God's people, when Jesus shows up in our midst, people might scream as they're getting rid of the junk that's in them. And that isn't a bad thing, that's a good thing. Can you get your head around that? Now that blew my box about the supernatural part. Because prior to that, I, I was, you know, I thought, okay, maybe they're evil spirits. My buddies in college who took hallucinogenic mushrooms, they saw evil spirits during their tripping experiences. And they told me about him, and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. But when I heard concretely the blood-curdling scream of somebody getting free from a demon in the name, the true name of the powerful Jesus, because somebody knew how to minister freedom to her and set her free from that lying spirit, I was like, wow, this is the real deal. We're living in a spiritual battle. And Jesus has given us the tools to be the victors in it. How cool is that? No wonder they came back rejoicing that the demons submitted in his name. I was like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> so as we, we're preparing, because in the rest of this passage in Ephesians 6, Paul is equipping these believers and us through them, through what he wrote to them, how to be victorious in this battle. How to put on the armor so that you're safe from the enemy's darts and his attacks. How to repair the armor where you got chinks in it. How to take up the offensive weaponry. And there's two weapons. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. Remember that episode where the disciples tried to set uh, a child free from an evil spirit. And the father said, your disciples couldn't do this. What's, what's going on here? And, and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith that they kind of caved with this situation. 
But then he also says some spirits only come out by prayer and fasting. There's a time, and that turns out to be part of the spiritual weaponry of throwing down strongholds of the enemy. Now, I, I, I'm going to close here by just saying that we, we're in this war and the enemy's working to try to destroy people and try to oppose the gospel and to prevent people from getting free in Jesus and even to prevent people from understanding the gospel. It says the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't perceive the light of God and the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. He's blinded people. They can't get the gospel because there's evil spirits, forces that are hindering them from coming to Jesus. How do you think those forces are going to be moved out of the way? It's by the prayers of God's saints. It's by us taking up and interceding for those lost folks. Us being willing to stand in the gap and say, Lord, put the burden of their lostness on me so they can come to you. Lord, move the enemy out of the way so they can receive the good news. Open their eyes and ears so they can understand. So we got offensive weapons and we need to be using them. You know, Jesus said, the gates of hell are not going to withstand this good news of the proclamation of my name that I'm the Messiah, the Christ. Remember that statement he said to Peter? When Peter confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, I give you the kingdom, of, the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell won't stand against. No, that's really God's desire is that in this spiritual war where he's had ancient forces in the spiritual realm who have rebelled against him and opposed him, who with this garden earth where he set up an, a new set of children who would learn what it was to know him and experience his love and, and, and the forces of rebellion convinced those children to disbelieve in God. And when that happened, we surrendered our allegiance from God to that evil thing. And out of the human race has come so much evil since. You know, there's a, a passage in Galatians, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. It's a picture of our slavery to the forces of wickedness when we don't know God in Christ. And what comes out of that kind of slavery is more evil. It's not the things of the kingdom. But Paul goes on to rejoice that when we are in Christ, we have a new owner. In fact, it's earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. We're transferred from citizenship in the kingdom of darkness, transferred from being under the dominion of Satan to citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, under the dominion of Christ. And in that place of new freedom, set free from the evil one because Jesus has defeated him on the cross. By the way, that's where our authority and power in this realm comes from. Christ having defeated the enemy on the cross, having paid for our sins. Therefore, we cannot just live in victory ourselves. We can begin to share that with others to help them experience victory in Christ. So we've got to get our heads around this and get ready for the battle, brothers and sisters, because you're in it whether you like it or not. And the sooner you grasp your spot in the army and take up your role and your sword, 
and your offensive weapons of prayer and the Word of God, the more quickly the spiritual battle will be won. The more quickly the things that oppose the will of God can be moved out of the way so the great things for the kingdom can happen. You know, it's not an accident that Jesus put these little words in his prayer that he gave us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why would we need to pray that if it was always being done everywhere? It's not. And then there at the end, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why would he put that in there if there's no such thing as evil? There is evil. And it's not just evil. One of the, uh, it's not just like impersonal. There's a personal intelligent, super intelligent spiritual being with a whole bunch of minions, rebellious angels with him that prowl around like roaring lions seeking somebody to devour. Other manuscripts say there, some of those ancient manuscripts of that passage, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom. Important key in our life as believers to grasp this battle, the reality of those forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm, and to get ready for our part in the war. So that you're not its victim. Better than that, so that you become somebody who brings victory to others. All right? I just want you to get that. God has a role for you like those 12, like those 72, and by implication through them for all of us who are disciples. Augustine wrote in the 4th century somewhere that even the commonest, most humble believer could go out and cast out devils in the name of Jesus. Never mind the priests, the pastors, whatever, the, the lay leaders of the church, just the humble people in the pew. And it was one of the reasons in the ancient Roman Empire filled with a cult and demons and oppression and all kinds of mental and emotional slavery that come out of that, that they saw Christianity and said, what the heck, I want that. People who get free from these people are happy. And they're released and they're not under that thumb of horror inside anymore. So Christianity spread. Now we live in an age when those same forces are at work and Jesus wants the church to be able to do that same thing today. Not just the pastor, not just the lay leaders, not just the prayer team, but every one of us. So wherever God is sending you, you are part of throwing down the gates of hell and rescuing people out of it. Amen? Well, I guess that's enough for today. We got through a sentence. And... Let's pray. We're going to open the altar up for prayer time now. And uh, you know, if you like, I invite you just to come forward and say, Lord, here I am. I'm, I, I surrender myself to be the soldier you want to be. Equip me. Get me ready. Here I am. Fill me with your spirit. Train me. Maybe you want to intercede for somebody who is in some type of captivity and they need somebody to stand between them and God help them get free of depression. Maybe you just got it today for the first time. Or maybe you need help getting it. There's still a part of you that's skeptical. That's like, no, no, I don't want to think that that's real. It can't be. Say, Lord, show me the truth. You're the God of truth. Help me get the truth about this. And he'll help you. Whatever it is you need today, or you want to come and ask for somebody else for help for, the altar's open. And let's... Uh, just come to God.
in worship and prayer together right now. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.